We are hitting the period here in Europe where I've noticed that quite a lot of out of office emails are going on from people saying, eh, I'm at the beach right now. I'll reply to your email in six weeks time, maybe if I can be bothered. And uh, as usual, all of these European out of office auto responses have been eliciting wonder and astonishment from our hardworking friends in the United States. You guys really need to legally mandate longer vacations over there. I think we have it right on this side of the Atlantic. What do you think? Well, I don't feel like I really benefit from it personally. (laughs) I find it quite triggering. I was going to say, over there in Amsterdam, I heard that you've been very busy. Yeah, I am. I'm particularly stressed this week. I'm actually working on possibly the most stressful project I've ever worked on, where we're doing instant compositions. So an interview takes place between two people living in Amsterdam North in the morning. A composer then takes some quotes from it and using their, even their ums and ahs and everything, writes a song using their text. And then I have to sing it in the evening. It's so stressful. (laughs) I feel like you've got the worst end of that job. I know, right? Sing this thing that I wrote five minutes ago. It's very rewarding, of course, but also just like incredibly stressful. I really, I've discovered I really like being well prepared for things. Well, I hope you're very well prepared for this podcast that we're about to record. Well, we'll see. I hope you are too. (laughs) Um, What have we got coming up this week? Well, this week we're going to be joined by someone who knows all about how the levers of power work in Europe. We're going to be joined by the Slovenian ex-European commissioner, Janez Potocnik. He was commissioner first for science and research, and then later the commissioner for the environment. And we've invited him on today to talk about one of the most important issues facing politicians all over the world today, the global food crisis. It's frankly a pretty scary situation out there with growing food shortages and ever increasing food prices. So it's a very important discussion to be having right now, even if it isn't an easy one. That's coming up later in the show. But first, it's time for... Who has had a good week? Well, you'll be happy to hear I have that rare thing of a good week story that's actually quite good news, even uplifting news. An actual good week. Yes. Yay. Because this week, Slovenia's constitutional court ruled that bans on same-sex marriages and bans on same-sex couples adopting children were unconstitutional. They decided with a 6-3 majority that these bans that currently exist are discriminatory and therefore cannot stay in place based on the constitutional prohibition against discrimination. And in a striking element of the ruling, they made it clear that tradition cannot be used to justify discrimination. Something which I guess many people listening will think sounds just like common sense. But hey, it's nice when a court confirms something like this, I thought. Yeah, it's a fun argument, isn't it? We can be racist because we've always been racist. Exactly. So does this ruling mean that same-sex couples will be able to get married and adopt, like, immediately? Yes, it does, amazingly. Although the court has also asked parliament to transform the ruling into legislation. And it's given them a six-month deadline to make that happen. Uh And is that something that the Slovenian parliament is likely to want to do or or actually be able to do? Well, potentially, yes. Um, We actually haven't talked about Slovenian politics much recently on the show, so it's good we're talking about Slovenia, because a lot has changed since we were last looking at politics in Slovenia. Back at the end of April, they had a general election and the populist Trump-loving leader, Janis Janša, was 
voted out, defeated by a new Liberal Party led by a former head of a major electricity company, Robert Golob. He now has a majority in the Slovenian parliament, governing alongside the Social Democrats and one other left-wing party. And like most other European governments, they do have quite a lot on their plates right now with the food and energy crisis, but they seemed pretty happy to move towards transforming this ruling from the constitutional court into legislation. And actually, the Minister for Labour, Family, Social Affairs and Equal Opportunities, that's a mouthful, isn't it? He said after the ruling, the constitutional court has ordered us to do it and we will do it with the greatest pleasure. Ah. That sounds nice and straightforward for a change. It does, doesn't it? But oh no! to be honest, I don't know quite how straightforward it will be. I read a blog from our Slovenian friend of the pod, the blogger Pengovsky, and he suggested that following this ruling, the government might feel inclined not to legislate or not to prioritize it, seeing as the court have ruled in a way that immediately removes the discrimination. The status quo is now what the government wants already, that same-sex marriages and adoptions are allowed. So they might be asking themselves, why is this legislation necessary? Mm. And why make it more of a political topic right now, especially seeing as it is an issue that can get quite horrible very quickly when politicians start fighting about it. Um, And it's an issue that could unite the currently pretty fractured political right wing of Slovenia. But Pangowski thinks it would be dangerous for the government not to legislate to confirm the ruling because it would then not take much for a future right-wing coalition to rewrite a line in the family law and then for a slightly more conservative lineup of judges on the constitutional court to rule differently in a potential future challenge against the discrimination again. Mm. He is worried that it's not going to be smooth sailing ahead, even if the government does get a change to the family law legislation through parliament. And if the family law legislation does pass through parliament, then Pankowski thinks it's inevitable that there will be attempts from the right at triggering a referendum on these same-sex rights, partly because of what I mentioned earlier, that it's a wedge issue. And it's been a divisive topic in Slovenia for quite some time now. There have actually been attempts, multiple attempts, by various Slovenian governments dating back to 2004 to try and legalize same-sex marriages, but they had all failed. One law change that would have given same-sex partners the same rights as married couples, except for in the case of adoption, actually passed the Slovenian parliament back in 2011. But a conservative group that opposed the bill collected enough signatures back then to trigger a referendum. And a majority of voters then rejected the change in law. Back then, the constitutional court was actually asked whether this referendum was constitutional because critics were saying it was causing discrimination. The court back then ruled that it was constitutional. So obviously it shows that the court has had a change in heart over the last 10 years, that they now rule in the opposite direction. And it obviously shows that the makeup of the court has also changed. There are some slightly less conservative uh, judges on the court. This is quite big news, though, in the context of like LGBTQ plus rights in the region, though, right? Like in, in Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah, many countries in Central and Eastern Europe actually still have constitutional bans against same-sex marriages. 
And at least according to the Associated Press's definition of what constitutes Central and Eastern Europe, they say that this is the first time a Central or Eastern European country has legalized same-sex marriage. So even if there are going to be some bumps later along the road, take good week for now, Slovenia. I hand it over to you gladly. Congratulations, Slovenia. Nice to see a constitutional court making a good call (laughs) for a change. Who has had a bad week, Katie? I'm going to give bad week to the politicians whose names have come up in an international media investigation called the Uber Files. Have you been following this little saga over the past few days? Yeah, a bit. Um, It's made a bit of a splash in the Netherlands because there was quite a prominent Dutch politician on the list, but also in France, right? More on which later. Uh, So yeah, this is one of those mega leaks of documents that journalists have been digging into in loads of countries around the world. And in this case, it consists of more than 100,000 internal company documents from Uber. So emails between executives, but also WhatsApp exchanges, PowerPoint presentations, that kind of thing. They've been leaked by an Irish guy called Mark McGann, who used to be Uber's top lobbyist in Europe. And uh, he is now wanting to atone for his sins. He believes that Uber has broken the law in dozens of countries. And he says he was complicit in bad behavior at the company, but he just wants all of this to be out in the open. All of these documents are from 2013 to 2017, which is a fascinating period because it's just when Uber was trying to expand outside the US, in Europe and elsewhere. And their boss at the time, Travis Kalanick, he was willing to do some quite questionable things to make that happen. So it's really, really interesting to have this really intimate historical resource about what was happening inside the company at that time. Do you think this is as juicy as like other big leaks and investigations like the Panama Papers or the Pandora Papers that led to days of headlines? Uh, I'll be honest with you. At the time of recording, I don't think anything that explosive has been revealed so far. It's mostly patterns of dodgy behavior by Uber that are not great, but not really surprising given what we already knew about the company and the company culture. Uh, The thing that relates most to the politicians we're going to talk about is that the files just really document how much Uber lobbied European politicians, like crazy amounts. But again, you know, is it that surprising that a tech company at that time with those ambitions to get into all of these new countries and then destroy the taxi industry as we knew it. Is it that crazy that they were throwing the kitchen sink at trying to influence politicians? So perhaps there's no real bombshells in these files. However, there are a few politicians who are in hot water because their names have come up in these files. And there's too many different cases to talk about. So I thought I would indeed, Dominic, concentrate on the most serious two, which happily for us come from each of our countries, France and Netherlands. Uh, Let's start with France. Emmanuel Macron, he's definitely the most high-profile figure so far, facing a fair bit of trouble over the Uber files. What exactly is Macron supposed to have done? So the documents date back to before he was president. They're from when Macron was the French economy minister. And Macron at the time was very keen on this idea of shaking up the French economy. He was a minister in a socialist government, but he was already developing this pro-business agenda, you know, make France more dynamic, that kind of thing. And so Macron was quite a fan of Uber and other US companies that he saw as disruptive and innovative. He thought that Uber could be good for France, especially by bringing jobs to young men from immigrant backgrounds in the banlieue who didn't have many qualifications, but they can maybe pick up some work as Uber drivers. It wasn't a secret that he thought like that. And the documents basically just show that he was really pretty cozy with the company. Uh, It's slightly uncomfortable to read in these messages where he calls Travis Kamnick, who was then the CEO of Uber, he calls him Dear Travis in texts. 
So it's a bit cringy, but it's not illegal. Uh, I think it's more that like knowing what we know now about Uber's model, it doesn't look great that Macron really went out of his way to help Uber. Uh, France is obviously really famous for taking workers' rights very seriously. And the arrival of Uber, it just represented this new model of zero worker protections and destroying the jobs of established taxi drivers by undercutting them. The concept of Uberisation, Uberization, it became a byword in France in those years for everything that was wrong with these quote-unquote disruptive US companies. Mm -hmm. um, so it's politically unhelpful for Macron to look like he was really the person who invited that model into France. What's your problem with him saying, dear Travis? Like, isn't dear Travis quite formal? <laughs> no, but in the middle of a text. Oh, but like, hello, dear Travis, like that. Do you want me to call you dear Dominic? Yeah, all the time. Or dearest. Noted, dear Dominic. Um, okay, but aside from that, has he actually done anything that might be illegal? I mean, Macron. Um, well, he doesn't seem to have registered all of his meetings with Uber executives. Uh, there are four meetings with Uber executives in the leak, and only one of them was disclosed, which, you know, raises questions over how thoroughly he kept records of his meetings with other corporate lobbyists. We really don't know. Um, apart from that, the main thing that there are questions over is this deal that was done over Uber Pop. Do you remember what Uber Pop was? No. So it was a service where basically anyone with a driving license could just become an Uber driver for a few hours. And it was super controversial in oh, France yeah. because we have this, yeah, it's really kind of feels sort of uh, retro. Um, but we have this really regimented taxi industry here where you have to have like a license to be a taxi driver, which can cost up to 250,000 euros. And suddenly it was like, Anyone can do your job without paying these startup costs. So it was hugely controversial. But anyway, there seems to have been this deal done whereby the French government may have suggested to Uber, look, if you kind of quietly get rid of this Uber pop service, we will really relax the rules around the normal Uber service, the more professional one, UberX, and make it really easy for you to do your business that way. Now, first of all, these allegations are still a little bit hazy. And also, I don't know, I think maybe my standards for what counts as a scandal have just got a bit too high in the Boris Johnson and Donald Trump era. But I just don't know if this is a real scandal. I mean, maybe I should be grateful that I live in a country where political opponents are jumping up and down and calling this a state scandal because it shows how relatively clean our politics is here. Yeah, I have to say, uh, in a week where possibly Boris Johnson like kind of admitted to having met an ex-KGB agent while he was foreign minister, Alexander Lebedev, without any foreign office staff or without possibly informing them. This does feel less bad than that. Everything's relative. But I'm still going to give Macron bad week because his opponents are making such a big deal out of it. And it comes at a time when he has a minority government. So after his party lost the recent parliamentary elections, they've decided to just try and get laws passed on a case-by-case -case basis. There's no coalition. Mm. So this is a delicate time for him. But yeah, honestly, in the grand scheme of things that Macron has done wrong, this doesn't rank as one of the top things for me. Okay, let's move on from Macron um, and talk about the Dutch example. Yes, indeed. Um, do you know who Nelly Kroos is? I have to say I didn't because I've not been living here so long. But I think everyone that has lived here longer does know who she is. She was like quite a popular um, politician who was seen as like doing quite good things in Europe. Until now. <laughs> Until now. Well, maybe. Let's let's have a look at what she's actually supposed to have done. So uh, Nelly Cruz used to be a European commissioner for digital things. 
And uh, she, like Macron, was a big fan of Uber in its early days. Big, big fan. So much of a fan, in fact, that these files show that on at least two occasions, when Uber's offices in Amsterdam were being raided by police, Nelly Cruz at least twice called her powerful friends and tried to get them to send the police home. Like, leave Uber alone, you guys. They've done nothing wrong. Chill out. Ha, okay. And this is while she was a European commissioner? No, so that's actually the issue. It was in 2015. Nelly Cruz was a European commissioner until 2014. But after that, there was supposed to be this 18-month cooling-off period where there were lots of restrictions on the jobs that she could take. And that is because there are these constant complaints that there's this revolving door between Brussels politics and big business. Mm -hmm. So it's an ethics thing. Um, Straight after Cruz's calling off period in May 2016, she was immediately given a job at Uber on their policy advisory board. A 200 grand job. Nice work if you can get it. It's about the same as we make making this podcast. (laughs) The, The problem is the files show that in the months before that, while she was in the calling off period, she not only tried to get the police to leave Uber alone, But she repeatedly spoke to Dutch ministers about Uber and offered to set up meetings between the lobbyists and senior officials. So mm, you could argue that she was maybe helping to lobby for Uber, even if she didn't have a paid role yet. Now, Cruz is adamant that she did nothing wrong. She also had an unpaid role at the time as a Dutch special envoy for tech companies, which means that it was kind of normal for her to talk to politicians about startups. At least that's what she says. But evidently, this was very sensitive because in the files, Uber executives talk about this relationship with Cruz as something super confidential. Like it absolutely wasn't supposed to be mentioned in public. So is there going to be some kind of investigation? Well, there's certainly been calls for one and she could lose her EU pension if she's found to be in breach of the rules. Whoa. So far, the commission has announced that it will write to Cruz asking for clarification about what she did, which is a very gentle way of going about things. But that's the EU way. I mean, look, if she's done nothing wrong, great. Let's all just get on with our lives. But I do think it would be good to see a proper investigation into this. As we all know, the EU doesn't always have a great image with the public. And one of the things that a lot of people don't like is this idea that our politicians are super cosy with corporate interests. And we have rules designed to limit that. So it'd be good to check that they've been followed. In the meantime, there do seem to be things trickling out of the Uber files as the days go on. Maybe by the time you hear this, there'll be some more juicy goss. Uh, There's loads of different media outlets that are taking part in this huge global investigation from Le Mans here in France to Direct 36 in Hungary, with all kinds of local angles and in local languages, obviously. So we'll just have to see what else comes out of this. A big thanks to all the wonderful supporters of our show, both on Patreon and elsewhere. We've got a few shout outs for this week for our newest supporters. They are Heather Peterson, E. Aktipi, and Katrina Stovolt. Head to our website, europeanspodcast.com, and press the support us button to find out more. Or you can go directly to patreon.com forward slash europeanspodcast. This podcast still exists nearly five years on because of very special people like you guys who allow us to pay ourselves to do all the research each week and to pay our producers. So we're hugely, hugely grateful for any help you can offer, even a few little coins. Uh, And if you're strapped for cash, you can also help us out by giving us five big gold stars on Spotify or Apple or whatever app you're using to listen to this. It's pretty clear by now that the ripple effects of the war that is raging on this continent go far beyond the borders of Ukraine. And 
Like us, I'm sure you will have heard the increasingly dire warnings of a global food crisis. I'm not talking about the kind of effects that we're seeing here in a wealthy country like France. So far over here, we've got shortages of things like mustard in the supermarkets. And for those of us on the tightest budgets, the price rises are really, really punishing already. But this is not just a European food crisis, it's a global one. And elsewhere, Africa in particular, there are warnings of a real famine. Not just because Africa normally imports so much wheat from Ukraine and Russia, but also because of a range of different factors. Fertiliser is crazy expensive at the moment. Energy costs are hitting farmers really, really hard. It's a perfect storm of different factors. And in the midst of all this, there are some in Europe who think that the priority right now should be producing as much food as possible. Which does seem like a good idea on the face of it. But for environmentalists, alarm bells are ringing that this focus on producing lots of food is going to undermine Europe's really ambitious plans when it comes to fighting climate change and protecting the environment. Just to give you one example, the EU's new stricter targets for reducing pesticides got delayed because it was felt, certainly amongst some farming lobbying groups anyway, that the focus really needs to be on producing high volumes, even if that means using more chemicals. So our question this week is, how do we manage these different priorities? Producing as much of our own food as possible on the one hand, and protecting the environment on the other. Do these priorities even need to be in conflict? Someone who has really strong opinions about these questions is Yanis Potocnik. He is a former Slovenian government minister, a former European environment commissioner, and in his current role at the UN Environment Programme, he's the co-chair of the International Resource Panel, which means he's done a lot of thinking about our food supplies and how to secure them in the long term. We gave him a ring at home in Brussels. People across the world have been struggling with rising food prices that jumped markedly after Russia began its full invasion of Ukraine at the end of February this year. But the price rises aren't only due to war, are they? Indeed, Dominic. Uh, one could say that war in Ukraine is the main reason, uh, but I would say it's an acute one. But there are also other reasons which are more chronic, like uh, climate change, like biodiversity loss. And as you know, droughts and extreme weather events are getting more frequent. Biodiversity is still in decline. Soil is still getting degraded. So food security, it's not a kind of stockpiling mentality or only about intensification of our production, uh, but it's rather something which is actually best provided in a kind of responsible longer-term behavior. Food security, it's also about change of the balance of the crops produced for food and for animal feed. Then it's about amazing agricultural technologies like vertical farming. A lot, it's also about how much food we waste because the wasted food, it's not only the food wasted, it's also the energy, the land, the fertilizers, everything which we use for those purposes. But more than that, Actually, food security, it's also about policies which have in the first instant nothing to do with the food, like how much of the food crops we actually, through the biofuels, feed to the cars instead we would feed the people. How much of the land we use for expanding infrastructure projects. So all that, it's about food security if we are looking to those questions in a bit more systemic way. So while dealing with all these acute challenges, I think we are facing also this emerging chronic systemic, environmental, and social crisis due to the overuse of natural resources 
and also due to the uneven distribution of the benefits. And unfortunately, this crisis is making instability the norm. You mentioned the need to feed our animals, and there's been a lot of pressure on European farmers to produce more cereals to feed our animals because a lot of that grain came from Ukraine before the war. But there are certain farming groups that are complaining that they can't do that if they have to put land aside to protect biodiversity, which is something that the EU is asking them to do. Do you think there is any validity to that argument? That it's always a danger to exploit the emerging acute problems to postpone solutions uh, for a longer term sustainability. But taking painkillers and stopping taking the systemic medicines will certainly not heal the disease, just make it worse. The most important is that all those short-term interests are actually aligned also with the longer-term stability. SDGs and also European Green Deal, Farm to Fork are very ambitious policies, but they are facing a kind of uphill battle from a simple reason. These regulatory efforts are sending us producers and consumers in a responsible direction, while the market incentives are actually sending us in totally different direction. So it would be simply time to stop signaling to producers that destroying nature is free of charge. But it's also time to stop the contradictory messages to us consumers. We are always routinely asked to pay more for the food, which is more environmentally friendly and more healthy than the opposite. So we are in a way asking consumers to behave against everything we were taught in economy. This short-term rational behavior, which is following the wrong market signals which we are getting, is actually leading us as humanity to something which one of my favorite authors, Arto Pasilina from Finland, titled one of his novels, Charming Mass Suicide. So I think it would be fundamental that we link resource use not to maximizing the output of production sectors, but rather to human needs, putting back humans in the center of the economy. I'm really interested to know how was it for you when you were a European commissioner? It must have been difficult working within this system that you seem to clearly want to change so radically. And I imagine that was quite a difficult thing to do. Have your thoughts evolved since you stopped being a commissioner and have you become more radical in wanting this systemic change? Or was that something that you were trying to do then as well in your 10 years as a European commissioner? It's not an easy task, to be honest, to keep the balance among these acute and chronic challenges. And politicians are actually frequently exposed to various pressures. Your thinking evolves. I was trying always to integrate this thinking also before, but I have to admit that currently I'm better and more aware of the challenges than I was uh, 10, 20 years ago. But uh, let us be frank, European Commission has shown with European Green Deal, with Farm to Fork, quite a courage and a vision. And it needs really a support from member states and understanding. It's not easy to keep the Green Deal line due to the pressures, but it's very much needed. It will have significant implications within Europe and also beyond. You've mentioned a couple of quite headline-grabbing EU environmental policies, farm to fork, the Green Deal. The EU published their nature restoration law a few weeks ago, and this bill is intended to give member states legally binding targets to restore degraded ecosystems. It's also going to provide 100 billion euros, apparently, for member states to use towards these aims. Um, 
I know that you were concerned previously that this law would be watered down by some opportunistic lobbyists. So what do you actually think about the bill that was announced in the end? Do you think it will be enough to turn around the huge biodiversity loss that we've been seeing across Europe? The politics, it's the magic of something which is possible. But as I have said before, I think this commission should be appreciated in having a, a vision and also in majority of the times, the courage to go ahead. So I sincerely hope, but like always, the main problem will be delivery and implementation. And we, we just have to be aware that nature is the most powerful ally in our quest for food security. And bringing back healthy ecosystems, it's a precondition uh, to help farmers avoid crop failures and uh, stave off the impact of climate change on agricultural land. Sometimes we are not very well aware that we are actually the first generation on the planet which is so interconnected and interdependent. The first generation which is living in socio-ecological uh, space of planetary scope, which makes us really fragile on one hand, but on the other hand, it's also increasing the responsibility that uh, we have to, to deal with all the challenges together. Our food supply chains, our economies and our societies are fragile. And it is pretty straightforward that we have to make them more resilient. And I've recently participated in Stockholm plus 50 debate in high level political uh, panel. And I was listening to contribution of 40 ministers sitting on the stage of the panel. And, and if I would need to summarize uh, the conclusions, it was saying something like that urgency. It's now even more urgently urgent. We need to be aware that who it's consuming most of natural resources in the context of the commodities which are provided to us for a high quality of life. And it is the high income countries. So we should look in the mirror and basically ask ourselves, what can we do? How can we reorganize to meet our needs with using less of materials and less of natural resources? I live in the Netherlands, where um, over the past few weeks, we've seen some pretty enormous and disruptive protests from farmers across the country, farmers who are fighting against environmental rules that are being put in place to slash emissions, but that will force some farmers to have to cease farming. It's been really quite a heightened few weeks of protests here, and it feels quite difficult to know how the government should deal with this swell of anger against measures that are so vital for the environment, as you've discussed. And yeah, it's a huge challenge for politicians to bring people along with these plans. Um, and it's obviously not the first time that uh, environmental policies have caused a backlash in Europe and elsewhere, and it certainly won't be the last time. But are you concerned about the social unrest that some of these policies provoke? And do you have any ideas on how to... <laughs> avoid it. No, of course, I'm worried about that. And uh, by the way, we need to be clear that farmers deserve decent life. Work on farms, it's not an easy work, far from that. And it's extremely, extremely important for all of us. Unfortunately, many times they don't get proper share of the income in the distribution of what we as consumers are paying. I'm convinced that actually environmental sustainability transition, it's closely linked to creating social conditions which would allow that this transition would happen. Any effort in the direction of fairness, equity, are thus essential ingredients of this more sustainable world we are talking about. 
At the same time, farmers also should be aware that it will be difficult to continue to provide that help if they will not contribute to fight against climate change, against biodiversity loss, because in the first place, that is in their own interest because they are the first line of defense and the first line also which is hit by the consequences of these longer-term climate and biodiversity-related problems. Before we leave the topic of farming behind us, I wanted to flag up a very cool multimedia story by our friends at Are We Europe about the fact that this continent's farmers are ageing and about the young farmers who are taking up the responsibility of feeding us, despite how difficult it is. Uh, it's a really nicely made story, I think. It's very immersive, really beautiful videos. I will post a link in the show notes. What have you been enjoying this week? I watched a short documentary on YouTube, an episode about ransomware from a series called Techtopia by Deutsche Welle. Yeah. And I have to say, I've always somewhat parked cybersecurity and the problems around that into a bit of a draw as one of those things I'm just not going to engage with too much because there are enough other things to actively worry about. Are you not worried about all the hackers who are listening to this and thinking Dominic well, Kramer sounds like an easy target? Well, after watching this, yes, I am. Um, it, this episode really helped impress on me why it is so important to have good systems in place, not just as individuals, but also as organizations. And in the case of this short film, for local authorities in particular, it focuses on a huge cyber attack that took place in the German district of Anhalt-Bitterfeld in 2021, bringing their entire administration to a standstill. Um, mm -hmm. It had a huge impact on the district. Pretty much everything stopped working from one day to the next. And there are little terrifying details, like they soon discovered that all emails from the last 20 years were gone forever. Ah. Anyway, this film is a really interesting look at the booming industry of ransomware and it persuaded me to go and check my antivirus software um so go and get yourself protected online if you haven't already and i'll put a link to the video in the show notes cool looking forward to watching that what have you been enjoying katie uh, i watched the first couple of episodes of Droll, a new-ish french comedy on netflix the english title is standing up and uh, if you haven't heard of it, it is brought to you by Fanny Herrero, who is the screenwriter behind Call My Agent, your favorite show. Mm. Uh, this time, she has turned her attention to the world of stand-up. And it's about a group of young people in Paris who are all trying to make it as stand-up comedians. Uh, one of my main takeaways from this series is that I truly don't understand why anyone would want to become a stand-up comedian. It looks like a horrible job. You're like standing there trying to be your funnier self. And if people don't like it, it just looks so miserable. It's truly my idea of a nightmare profession. There are so many TV series about stand-up comedians right now. Oh, really? What else is there? Uh, Hacks, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, oh. and Feel Good. That's a British one. 
They're all really good, but you're right. It looks like a horrible profession. Not really my thing. I think this is the one stand-up show I'm going to watch. Um, but apart from those scenes of comedians bombing, this is a really enjoyable show, and I found myself quite invested in finding out what happens to all the characters. They are a diverse bunch of Parisians from different backgrounds, which is not as unusual as it used to be in a French show, but it's still nice to see. And um, another small thing that I noticed about it is that there's a couple of moments where you hear accented French, like a member of the mm. audience might heckle. And it'll be like, oh, she sounds like not French. Maybe she's from somewhere else in Europe. And that's really nice because you don't often see it on TV. Um, The other thing I really like about it is that it's mostly shot in a Paris that I recognize, Northeast Paris, which is not the city that you might see if you watch the godforsaken Netflix series Emily in Paris. It's Mm -hmm. a lot shabbier and, uh, in my opinion, a lot more fun and interesting. So if you're looking to see a representation of a Paris that feels a little bit more real than Emily's Paris... I recommend checking it out, uh, standing up on Netflix. I've got a happy ending for you all today that we can park in one of my favorite categories of happy ending stories, people finding really old things. And this time it's something extraordinarily old that's been found in northern Spain by a team of Spanish archaeologists. They found a piece of cheek and jawbone from a human and guess how long ago they think this human lived. Oh, I don't know, but it sounds nasty. Um, A few thousand years? They think this bone might be 1.4 million years old. Whoa! Which would make it the oldest European human fossil ever to be found. The current record for the oldest human fossil found in Europe was a jawbone found actually at the same site as this back in 2007. And that one was 1.2 million years old. It's going to take quite some time to confirm whether or not the bone is indeed as old as they think. But in the meantime... Keep up the good work, team, and congratulations on this amazing discovery. I didn't even know we had humans that long ago. (laughs) Neither did I. Just before we go, final call for recommendations for our European reading list, which I'm putting together for next week's episode. The last one before we put our out of office on... Um, If you've read anything good lately that is by a European writer or is set in Europe, send it my way and I will add it to the list. You can tweet at us at EuropeansPod, drop us a DM on Instagram at EuropeansPodcast or send us an email, hello at EuropeansPodcast.com. Before we go, big thanks to the producers of this episode, Katie Lee and Wojciech Oleksiak. Our team also includes the amazing Katz Laszlo. We are also members of the Are We Europe audio family. Go and check out their audio offerings at areweeurope.eu forward slash audio dash family. See you next week, everyone. Nas vidanya. Adios.